Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number six. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Fuhr of Quality Deer Management Association, where we'll discuss how to begin a QDM co-op, how to get involved with your local Quality Deer Management Association branch, and Ryan shares an awesome hunting story. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. You're listening to episode number six. And today I'm joined by Ryan Fuhr of Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, I got to say, I'm pretty excited to have Ryan on. This uh, podcast has been in the making for quite a few weeks, uh, a few challenges in getting the schedules to align, but uh, overall, we're making it happen today. The reason I'm probably the most excited is, number one, Ryan has a wealth of knowledge across the spectrum of, of, of deer, no matter you know what it comes to, whether you want some statistics on what the deer herd is doing, whether you want statistics on um, uh, uh, mating dates and uh, fawn weights, and you name it, this guy has the information. He's a wealth of knowledge. But specifically what we want to talk about today is how to begin a QDM co-op. This is an idea I've been toying around with at our farm uh, the past uh, year or so, and I wanted to get a little bit more information. I knew kind of high level what some of the steps were to take, but I wanted to get some more detail, and I assumed that there'd be some folks out there listening that would be interested in the same thing. Essentially, a, a QDM co-op is you know, folks with smaller chunks of land coming together to create habitat uh, principles that kind of span a, a larger um, piece of land than you may own just yourself. Um, recently we started having conversations with some of the neighboring farmers, you know, one of them specifically rents out some of, or leases out some of our fields, um, to plant. So we started having some preliminary conversations just to kind of gauge their interest in, in, in how they approach deer hunting. Is it a brown, it's brown, they're down approach, or are they looking to harvest, you know, more mature deer? Are they, you know, beyond the antler restrictions that are in place in Pennsylvania, are they looking to implement harsher restrictions on themselves to make sure that, you know, bucks specifically are, are, are reaching a more mature age or at least having an opportunity to develop? So we started having those conversations, and I want to just kind of consider how we can take this to the next level and what the outcomes might be and, you know, the time frame that it might take for something like this to take hold. Um, but first and foremost, you know, usually at this point I would introduce my esteemed colleague, Phil Marchek. Unfortunately, he's not able to join us today. He had a, uh, a, a personal matter that he had to attend to and wasn't able to hop on the, uh, the call in time. So, um, he'll be back on hopefully next week. Um, but with that said, I think the, the amount of information that Ryan has to share, I think we should probably just jump right into the phone call with Ryan. So I'll go ahead and dial him up and we'll get started. All right, and we're back. I'm joined by Ryan Fuhr of the Quality Deer Management Association. Ryan is the regional director for Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, and Southeast Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. We're super stoked to have have Ryan on today. Um, but before we get started, Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Good. How was? Uh, I know you recently got back from vacation. How was your uh, How was your time away? Uh, it, was, it was really nice. Uh, you know, it was always as vacation is. It was short, but uh, it was good. It was good to get to the beach and uh, see family and uh, hang out and kids playing in the water. So it's always fun. Did a little fishing while I was away as well. 
nice. That's not, doesn't sound like a, like a, like a bad vacation. In, in my opinion, I know coming back from vacation, it only takes about two days until it seems like a distant memory, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I, I've read up on you just a little bit. Um, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time on the, the QDMA uh, website and want to just kind of um, get a little bit more familiar with who you are. But for those who are listening who uh, maybe don't know who you are and what, you know, what a ro- the role of a, a regional director of the Quality Deer Management Association is, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself, your hunt- hunting background and, and professionally and where you're from? Uh, sure. I am from uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, born and raised. Um I've basically been in the hunting industry for a long time since I've been a young child. I I, uh, I started out shooting archery uh, when I was about eight years old, uh, just you know basically just because you know bow hunting was up and coming, and I had this fascination with uh, trying to kill a white-tailed deer with a bow and arrow. And I, I really I picked a bow up when I was eight, and I really haven't put one down since. Um, and it really I had this this huge drive and passion to be a hunter, uh, which is, it's a pretty cool story or story, if you will. But, uh, my, my dad and my grandparents, uh, I, I really didn't come from what you would call a hunting family. Uh, they hunted some, uh, you know, maybe first day of deer season here and there, you know, family would come in and do a little bit of hunting, uh, small game and, and, and fish a little bit, but, uh, the passion and drive I had for it was uh, very deep rooted. So, uh, or deep seated, if you will, like, uh, almost, you know, from, who knows how many generations ago, but uh, it was pretty neat that it just it was what I had to do. Uh, it, it pulled me in, and I have never left. So I've shot a bow uh, competitively, professionally, uh, and it just kind of rolled right into I owned my own archery shop for, over, I guess, eight years, uh, and then <clears throat> through college and everything, and I got the chance to work for the QDMA, and, and uh, I've been doing that for a while now, too, so it's pretty good. Nice. So I, I like two things there that I liked is that you're a, you're also a Pennsylvania boy, which uh, I like I like here, and I'm from the central part of the state, so uh, the Bedford County area is uh, okay. is where I grew up. Um, and so one question is like I'm I'm assuming Steeler fan. Absolutely. Is there oh, any that's other? A, that's a, <laughs> we're probably going to get a lot of flack from those in Ohio, yeah, right. maybe <laughs> listening to this. Um, and then number two, what I liked hearing was you started shooting when you're eight. My daughter is eight. Uh, she started shooting. Oh, actually, she, I, I misspoke. She'll be eight this weekend. Actually, we have a big birthday party. Oh, cool. Um, but she, yeah, so she started shooting a compound, uh, when she was seven. Uh, now I haven't put any sights or anything on it for her yet. Cause I just have her kind of shooting into a blank target, trying to get her to help her get her mechanics together and make sure she gets all of her anchor points and stuff like that. So that gives me some hope that she started this, uh, this early that maybe she can, uh, Maybe she can follow in a, maybe your footsteps and, and, and work in the outdoor industry, which, uh, you know, her dad would love that. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. And I'll tell you what, it's uh, better, the chances of that happening now are better than they were then. You know, it wasn't really cool to shoot a bow when I was eight, but uh, it's really cool now with the hunter games and, uh, you know, all the, all the, uh, the, the archery is really, you know, fastly growing. So we, we're finding across the nation a lot of young kids are getting into it because it is a really cool yeah. effort. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I love seeing, you know, I just went to the range yesterday. I saw probably three, three kids that were all under the age of, I'd say 13, uh, shooting with their, shooting with their dad or their uncles or, or whomever it was, which was great. The the flip side of that is it's at some point we'll, 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 we'll have them in the, in the woods and be working with the, uh, working with the additional pressure, but we'll, uh, but we'll take it just to make sure we have a, a little bit of a louder voice when it comes to, uh, voicing our opinions about policy and so forth, which will, which is always a good thing. Absolutely. Um, so I guess before we get into the QDMA or QDM specific stuff, I want to just kind of get a sense of uh, how your 2015 deer season went. Did uh, did you have some success, and, and where were you hunting this year? Uh, let's see, I, I did not have any success. Um, and I, I say that, and if, uh, if anybody knows me, it's listening to me, you're probably laughing. But um, uh, I hunted, let's say, I hunted Iowa, Ohio, and Pennsylvania this past season, and I did not kill a deer. Um, now. I guess I, I do place some strict self-limitations on myself. So, um, you know, I, I did have opportunities at, at some mature deer, but I did not shoot one. Yes. And I did not kill a doe this year. So this was the first year in a long time. I hadn't had any uh, deer meat in the freezer. And um, my friends have let me know that for since last season, for sure. Yeah, no deer meat in a freezer is uh, is uh, is not a sight I I like to see. But hey, hitting Iowa and Ohio in the same season sounds pretty uh, pretty good to me. I'll be making my first trip to Ohio uh, this year. 
So oh, good. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty excited about that. I'm actually headed out on the weekend of the 10th to, uh, to scout. So I might have to hit you up via email for a little bit of, uh, of, uh, Southeastern, uh, Ohio advice, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, you know, I, I, in full transparency, I'm, I'm, uh, a member of quality deer management association. I've, I've, I've attended some of the seminars and stuff and I've found them in- incredibly valuable and ha- couldn't be happier, um, with being a member. And if for nothing else, the, the magazine you all put out is, is awesome. And it's almost like uh, Christmas every time that I, uh, I get one. My wife kind of makes fun of me because I do a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of shame to admit, but, but I might do a little bit of a dance when I walk in the front door from work, whenever <laughs> right. that magazine's laying on the staircase for me. Um, but for those that are listening that aren't sure or not clear, because I think sometimes that some folks have some cu- uh, some confusion as to what quality deer management is um, and what it stands for. So if you could just kind of give us a sense of what quality deer management is or a quality deer management association is and, and what kind of services and information you guys provide. Right. So I get that question a lot, and there's a lot of, I guess, misconceptions or perceptions out there of what we are. But basically, um, we're for the future of the white-tailed deer, the habitat, and the habitat they live in our future hunting generation. So basically, we're doing whatever it takes to make sure that, you know, the number one sought-after big-game animal doesn't go away or the habitat that it lives in, and there's future generations come along, table to hunt, enjoy, you know, those white-tailed deer as, as I did growing up. So uh, in a nutshell, that's probably the, the best, easiest, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, elevator speech I could give somebody it is to what we do. Now, there's a lot of a lot of facets that come off of that, you know, from our disease research to our youth program to our deer stewardships, uh, you know, habitat consulting. I mean, you name it, down the board. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that gets that, that I guess goes along with that. But for the <clears throat> at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to protect the white-tailed deer, the habitat they live in, and then ensure the future of hunting our hunting heritage. Right. And the one thing I would kind of add on to that, and you can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but for me to the, to the, the person who's maybe not familiar, um, you know, I consider QDMA kind of like my first stop. If I'm looking for some type of information, um, it's, it's kind of my go-to resource. Um, cause typically it's, if, it, if it's not there, you'll get a, you'll either get a sense of where you may be able to find it, um, but it's just, there's a glut of information on the site, um, for, as you mentioned, from everything from the biology of deer. I mean, I've gotten lost in the wormhole of QDMA's website of reading just random things that I would have never five years ago thought that I'd be interested in reading. Um, but you mentioned something there, two things that you mentioned was the future, you know, protecting the, the is, you know, I'll say the Pennsylvania, since I live in Pennsylvania, big game animal, um, for future generations. And you also mentioned disease research. And I wanted to ask you, you know, for Pennsylvania specifically, what is the state or the status of the Pennsylvania deer's population as it's related to EHD? Um, and then the second part of that question is, you know, what's your opinion? Cause I know I've read some stuff recently where they've talked about some culling efforts that might be potentially happening, especially near where my hometown is in that Bedford County kind of South central portion of Pennsylvania, um, as a culling as a means to, uh, control the spread of EHD in affected areas. So if you could kind of give me a sense of what your, your opinion is on those two things. Well, uh, I guess. First, um, you know the deer herd in Pennsylvania, and you know that's a that's a tricky question. Um, I guess it also deserves a tricky answer. But throughout the state, <laughs> throughout the state, it varies. Uh, you know, you, you know, there's probably a lot of hunters out there listening uh, that you know maybe had a really poor season last year. Uh, there's probably a lot of hunters out there that haven't really seen a change, and there's a lot of hunters out there that saw a lot of deer. Um, so they're in pockets. I will say that you know you go. Uh, North of you in north central PA, up in the big woods of Potter County, Tioga, uh, you know all all those uh, bigger areas up there with a lot of timber and a lot of land. Um, the deer numbers are probably down, you know, compared to what they used to be, uh, and also the hunters are down up there too, just because you know, over the years the deer numbers have kind of dwindled and and the hunters have dwindled up in that area. So there's more pressure in other areas now than where there usually wasn't or hadn't been historically. Uh, and in those areas, you know, they're still seeing deer. So southwestern Pennsylvania, you know, Fayette, Green, Washington, Allegheny County, they still have high, high deer numbers, uh, parts of the southern part of Fayette anyway. Um, and then you go out through the south, out towards, you know, south central PA and then over to southeastern PA, where you have a lot more hunters, you know, the deer numbers are kind of balanced out there. Uh, they fluctuate back and forth. But for the most part, uh, 
Pennsylvania's deer herd is very healthy. Um, you know, we've, we've been into, I think this would be what the 14th season of other restrictions and, uh, and, uh, higher doe harvest. And the numbers are still healthy. And we just recently, Pennsylvania does a lot of research and a lot of studies, uh, recently. And I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I do know basically that, you know, because a lot of people say that, you know, it was better before antlers. And not a lot of people actually antler restrictions or the APRs are in, I think, a 4% approval rating right now. But uh, there are still some people out there that say it was better, you know, back when. And they just released a study recently, and, and I'd have to dig around to find it, but I do know it basically it said that your chances chances of harvesting a deer now are basically exactly the same as they were when there were no antler restrictions. So, just looking at the statistics, the, the odds haven't changed at all. And now you're just harvesting bigger, older deer. Um, right. So, and as far as the deer herd, I think it's uh, I think it's going pretty well. Uh, you know, a, a few minor adjustments here and there, which we're probably going to have to go through. Uh, you know, in the north woods being more timber cuts, uh, so there's more browse, and it can probably stand to hold a few more deer per square mile. And in the south, you know, it's com- the complete opposite. I, a couple areas I hunt in Washington County, I mean, I see a lot of deer. I would I hate to even speculate how many deer per square mile there are, but there's a lot. Um, so it definitely fluctuates throughout the state, and it's when I say tricky, it's tricky to answer that question. It's very tricky to manage the state at that level as well and keep everybody happy. You're always going to have some naysayers out there. But, uh, you know, overall, I think it's pretty healthy. Um, nice. So, I mean, as far as – so even with the EHD – I know EHD, at least from my novice perspective, isn't rampant or widespread in Pennsylvania at the moment. It seems like it's kind of – clustered into that uh, south central portion of, of Pennsylvania. So before you get any further, you're speaking of CWD. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, CWD. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. When you're talking about calling for EHD, I was thinking I've never seen a study that says you should call deer for, for EHD. Um, so yeah, I got it, my it, acronyms backwards. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, just so that for the listeners, basic, the basic, the difference between EHD and CWD, um, EHD is basically a, a biting midge that uh, is more prevalent throughout the drought season. So <clears throat> historically, they've been around forever, especially in southern states where there's a lot of drought. Uh, the deer can die from that, or they can also survive. And if they do survive, they become immune to it. So uh, this year, and we're just into you know basic EHD season right now, so I think we have a pretty low, uh, if any, I haven't heard of any, locally anyway, of, of confirmed EHD cases, basically, because we've had a pretty a pretty wet summer where it's been rainy. So uh, there hasn't been any concentrations of uh, pools for those little midges to, to grow in. And then CWD, obviously, is the, 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 the disease that's basically a, a prion in the brain that affects the nervous system in the brain. And <clears throat> there, is, there is some studies out there on the calling. Uh, and you are correct in saying that it is more... Uh, confined to the south central part of the states uh so far mm-hmm. um so you know to to call them you know it's i mean i can go either way with that i can argue either 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 way should you or shouldn't you uh it's one of those deals a case-by-case scenario i know in wisconsin when they had it it was so prevalent up there that they they, they had to call deer um you know ours isn't as prevalent as it was and we've done a really good job at containing it um, you know, we put when it first was found, I think, I forget how many miles, I think it was around, you know, like basic the 600 mile radius, your deer had to be checked and processed and, you know, try to do a really good job of testing uh, to find, you know, to really narrow down where, where the, and, and stop the spread of it. Um, so for the most part, they do, it does pop up every year. Uh, but as far as calling efforts, man, that's, a, that's another controversial, you know, should you or shouldn't you. And, yeah, and, right. and there's, there's, perfectly acceptable arguments on both sides, honestly. Right. Yeah. Is there any, is there any, I'm trying to think as far as variables are concerned because the the topography and just kind of the the land is different between the States where they have done it and then Pennsylvania where it's being considered. Is there anything to that to, to consider? Cause some of the States where they have done, it's obviously they have larger tracks of i'm going to assume ag land right um and then in smaller blocks of timber where in some areas especially you know in the area 
where it seems to be prevalent in Pennsylvania, or at least making its intrusion into Pennsylvania, it's, you know, I grew up in that area and you, you're not too far away from there. I mean, there's, we have some agricultural land, but I mean, it's a lot of big blocks of timber. They're not small blocks of timber connecting ag fields. It's, you know, ridge ranges so and so on and so forth. So is there anything to the difference between topography that might make, make it challenging to, to do a call successfully? Yes, I, w- I would, I would, in a purely speculation, but I would assume so. Just being a hunter, I mean, and you're right, you know, in the ridges that, that you're speaking of compared to ag land, um, yeah, those deer can, you know, they're out, you know, wandering around basically, and CWD spread through deer-to-deer contact. Um, so you know, if, they're, if they're here one day, where were they two days before, you know, especially if food sources are limited uh, and if, you again, you know, water sources. So in those mountainous regions, I, you know, I would definitely speculate to say that the deer travel further distances and probably have a, a bigger, you know, not so much core area, but a bigger home range. Uh, just because there's more room to wander, so to speak. So uh, I, I would, you know, I don't know if there's any studies out there that would say that directly, but purely speculation, I would think you're you're spot on with that. Right. All right. So on to on to happier conversations. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I think a lot of our listeners are from high hunting pressure states like like Pennsylvania, right, where we have a lot of hunters per, per square mile. So I wanted to talk, you know, specifically with you about some things that can be done to help folks with their land management efforts to create better hunting, grow more mature bucks, you know, and specifically the impact of employing quality deer management philosophies and setting up QDMM, QDM cooperatives in their area. So I guess to start, what are some of the guiding principles of quality deer management? Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Well, I mean, quality deer management, I guess, you know, going back to, you know, who it is and who we are and what we do uh, and some of the misconceptions or perceptions that are out there of us, a lot of people think, and I've run across this, you know, my daily travels, I run across this quite a bit, that for some reason people think that the QDMA is all about uh, higher antlers, deer harvest, and bigger antlers. And, you know, unfortunately, it's really far from the truth. you know, the, we would never recommend to shoot those without doing some sort of deer survey, you know, on your property. Uh, we, we want to know the actual numbers before we would recommend that. The bigger antlers are just basically a byproduct of a healthier herd. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're shooting three-and-a-half or four-and-a-half-year-old deer as opposed to a year-and-a-half or two-and-a-half, you're always going to have bigger antlers. So, you know, that is just a byproduct of having a healthier, you know, healthier herd you know, through the buck-to-doe ratio. Um, so some of the things, you know, you can do to, to manage your property, you hit the nail on the head with the co-ops, uh, especially some of the smaller properties, uh, like you say, in the higher, higher pressured area, um, you know, 30 or 40 acres. A lot of people I get, you know, oh, they have 30 acres, I can't really do that. And I tell you, anymore, uh, you know, you can. Now, you're not going to raise a deer and, and it's going to live completely solely on your 30 acres. But, you know, you could definitely, you know, help skew those odds a bit more in your favor. And then, you know, to take it a step further, uh, there's a lot of research out there that says, you know, uh, the core area or, excuse me, the home range of, of a mature deer sometimes is around a square mile. So call it 640 acres um, you know, through a cooperative, meaning, you know, you can get the, the adjoining landowners in, your, in an area to agree to a certain set of guidelines or principles now you're you're talking that you can really affect you know if you're affecting you know from a few hundred acres to you know we have them upwards of 60 70,000 acres so um and it doesn't it's not that you know it's it's what you agree upon so it doesn't have to be that strict of a program it can be what it what it makes everybody happy but at the same time it's definitely benefiting the deer it's benefiting the habitat you know the whole way across the board so it all starts with, uh, you know, 30 acres. And I have uh, personal experience with this. Uh, a guy in Maryland, you know, called me just, you know, about what we're talking about now. And I think when he started, he had 78 acres. And he was like, man, I'd really like to, to do something different and, and try to get my neighbors on board because, man, I, I'm all about quality deer management and, and everything <laughs> you guys do and what you preach and food plots. And, you know, I mean, he was just doing everything, supplemental feed, trail camera surveys, 
you know, he's weighing an agent fetuses and I mean, across the board on 78 acres. And that was, I think we're going into seven seasons now, seven seasons ago when we started this. And I, I, we're somewhere between 60 and 70,000 acres tied up into a co-op. And, uh, wow. Yeah, so, and it grew, I mean, oh, my God, like wildfire. And what he did, uh, you know, he was really good at working with people. You know, a lot of times when you say, you know, whether you have 30 acres or 200 acres and you're trying to tell your neighbor, um, you know, hey, I really think we should do it this way, and especially you know, if they've been doing it a certain way for 25 or 30 years, you know, a lot of people aren't really open to new suggestions. They, they have no reason to change because they've been enjoying it the way they were doing it. So you have to be really careful on how you force feed that information to people, and you really can't force feed it at all. You you kind of have to just educate them and let it become their idea at some point, you know. Uh, right. But what he did was, you know, he wanted to keep the guidelines very minimal whenever he got a few of his closest landowners on board. And I think the first year, I think it went from like 78 to like 230 acres. And basically he just he set up a, a meat pool, so to speak, in, in his garage, and he invited uh, – I, I may be wrong, but it was like four or five landowners, the total 230-some acres. And the first year, all they did uh, was they shot with had no – point restrictions, you know, no age class restrictions. He just said, let's weigh the does we kill. Let's just weigh the does. Okay. And that was pretty simple, right? There was no harm in that. And basically what he was doing is he was creating a baseline. So, and then on top of that, on his own, not only did he weigh the does, but he aged them. So then on, in, on, in his data, you know, he was recording all this in his data, you know, he would have a three and a half or two and a half year old doe, whatever it may have been, he would age the jawbone and he would weigh it. And, you know, you could show people, here's what it weighs, you know? And of course that's a great, a great tool because, you know, I've weighed a lot of deer in my life and I've heard a lot of people talk about how much their deer weigh. And I've really weighed very few deer that weigh as much as people think they do. Uh, especially right. when it comes to those. I've, I've had a lot of conversations with guys that go, you know, and my buddy shot a doe, my brother shot a doe, weighed 175 pounds. And I think to date, the heaviest doe I've ever weighed was like 124 pounds, you know, out of Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> it I mean, felt that I was, heavy, dra- dragging it up the ridge, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So I know they seem that heavy, but it, realistically, they're probably not. Um, so basically, he created this baseline of how much the does weighed and how old they were, right? So, you know, fast forward the next year on their own. And, and by doing that all season, it created conversation. They couldn't wait to get there when somebody shot a deer just to stand around the meat pool and look at the scale and talk about what they saw that day. You know, they did it all through bow season and the gun season. And it was really cool. You know, everybody enjoyed it. So the next year on their own, not even, he didn't even pressure them. They said, you know, Hey, how about we implement a, a four point restriction? We're going to shoot anything under four points. And this was in Maryland. So they don't have any statewide restrictions at the time. So, uh, and just, you know, or, uh, Garrett County, Maryland, so not far from where I am here, you know, within uh, 50 miles of me, so a lot of the same territory. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, they, they implemented a, a four, you know, it's just not shoot four points type of deal. And they did the same thing. They weighed the deer and, um, you know, they were they were not shooting, they were passing uh, spikes in the, in the three-pointers, so to speak. And they weighed the does again. And if they killed bucks, they weighed the mage does also. And then it got interesting in the third year because between somewhere between year one and year three, the more landowners were catching on to these guys all hanging out in in uh, my buddy's uh, garage there and talking about what they were doing. So they started showing up. Hey, how do we? How can I tie my land in this? This is pretty cool, you know. And it, you know, it's slowly it was growing to you know from 400 acres to 800 acres to 1,200 acres and so forth. And you know the next year from the third year to the fourth year. On their own, they didn't, I mean, it was just like, hey, we want to not shoot anything less than an eight point. So now it's kind of serious, you know. Uh, when you start protecting deer up to the eight points, um, you know, you're probably protected most of the year and a half holds, and that's what we want you to do. Uh, yeah, that's what, you know, if, if you're looking for a, a better age class, if you can protect those year and a half old bucks, you're doing a really good job. And putting an eight point restriction on, I mean, you're not protecting all of them, but you're going to protect probably 85, 90% of them. Um, so that's really good. And then also because these guys are standing around, I call it the fire pot every evening talking, they started supplemental feeding and, you know, some guy that, you know, wasn't doing food plots at all three years ago is now doing food plots, you know, so now they're, they're creating better habitat. They're, they're creating a better, their, 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 their land becoming better just because of this, basically let's stand around and weigh the does type of deal. And, 
that third year when they started shooting the, the same age class does and they're weighing them, they noticed that they were getting heavier, right? And that was when the light bulb went off on everybody's head. If the does are heavier, they're healthier. They're healthier. That's what we're looking for, a healthier deer herd, right? So right. It, it basically started because of, you know, him saying, let's just weigh and age the does, right? But when he, he kept very meticulous data, and when you were able every year to open that data book, that log book, and look every year, see the two-and-a-half-year-olds getting six, eight, ten pounds heavier, you know you're going the right direction. And then, you know, when they got to the eight-point, you know, antler restriction, then these bigger, you know, the fourth year now, if they had been protecting bucks for almost three years, now they started killing three-and-a-half-year-old deer. You know, they were actually huntable. You know, three-and-a-half-year-old deer is being hunted that, that hadn't been in previous years. Um, wow. And last spring, every year, they invite everybody. Uh, they have a local branch there, TDMA branch, and they invite everybody that's in the co-op to come to the banquet, and they invite you to bring um, – any bucks that you've killed off of that co-op that you that you've mounted, you know, it doesn't have a minimum score. But you know, if, if you've paid to have taxidermy done, bring it. We'll display it. You know, let people talk about it type of deal. And again, I don't know if it was exactly, but I think there was 128 deer brought last year to last year's banquet. And some of them, there was a few of them over 170. Um, wow. They are they are killing five and a half year old plus deer now. I mean, they're they're there and very huntable. You know. Uh, so it has really been a successful co-op and the whole area has benefited from it. I mean, even the people that aren't in the co-op all the way down to the state land, because these properties border, you know, state, state game lands, uh, you know, other ground. I mean, the area in, is just better. The hunting is phenomenal around there. And I had hunted there, geez, you know, when I was a kid, you know, 20 years old type of deal. And uh, I mean, basically it was spikes and three points and that such. And, and literally walking around, listening to the stories, feeling the vibe at that banquet. I mean, there's, it sells out at over 300 people. You know, I think there, I'm pretty sure it was 128 deer on the wall, and most of them were pr- over 130 inches out of that area. Would have been 20 years ago. I mean, if one of those bucks came out of that area, I mean, you would have been that would have been a big deal. Now there's so many. Um, and it's just simply because a few guys decided to allow some of these deer to get age. And, uh, you know, that's what's happening. It's just the snowball effect. Um, you know, and again, when I talk about some of the, you know, you don't have to get so strict with it. They have, you know, any, uh, any youth, um, can shoot, anybody up to 16 can shoot whatever they want. Any senior can shoot whatever they want. And also, it's not like you get fined. I mean, if if you own the property and, and you're a hunter, don't have time to hunt, and you, want, you see a deer you want to shoot, man, we want you to have fun and, and enjoy doing it. So shoot what you want. There's no punishment. You know what I mean? We would like right. you to go by these guidelines. But at the end of the day, we also want you to enjoy the outdoors and nature. So, you know, hey, it's 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 basically the good old boys club. Man, do what you want, have a good time. You know what I mean? But just don't don't abuse the system type of deal. But hey, you know, let's let's make sure we're doing this for all the right reasons. And then at the end of the day, it's absolutely not about the big antlers. It's just a lot of fun. And there's not a hunter out there that doesn't want to shoot a trophy buck. I mean, you know, so right. the, the byproduct of a healthy a healthy deer herd is big antlers. So. I mean, you know, and I've I've done a, you know some speaking throughout my time, and I always get you know the the, the guy in the back of the room you know, raising his hands, going, you know, I, I've been a hunter for forty years, and you know I don't I I work you know six days a week, which we know there's a lot of guys, especially in Pennsylvania, we can't hunt on Sunday, so you know you don't get a lot of time to hunt. Why should I have to abide by an antler restriction when I just want to shoot whatever comes comes by? Well, my answer to that is. You know, first you can shoot a doe. You know, I mean, so if you're worried about three or four point, yeah, I get it. I mean, I'm a I'm a guy. We like to drive fast cars and you know to chase the pretty girls in high school. We like to shoot shoot bucks. You know what I mean? But right. when you ask these guys that they don't they can care less if they shoot you know a ten point or a spike. My first question to them is, okay, if you're sitting in the woods on an opening day of gun season in Pennsylvania, which you and I both know is a huge deal in Pennsylvania. And right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, two bucks walk up to you. One of them's a 135 inch ten point. The other one's a four point. Which one are you going to shoot? Well, the answer is always the ten point, right? So right. these guys aren't, you know, the, those guys that say that they're not trophy hunters until they're presented the opportunity. So, 
by having a healthier deer herd, those statistics of killing an older age class buck go up. Now, you know, it's not a guarantee. It's still hunting, and it's still quite hard to shoot a deer. Actually, I think only 10% of the hunting population is another statistic I'll throw at you, but only 10% of the hunting population shoot a deer over 130 inches in their lifetime. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so when you look at those statistics, it's definitely not like you're going to do this every year, every you know, every season. But when you start to do things to put the odds in your favor, why not, right? So, right. I mean, and again, keep it fun, keep it interesting. And another thing, too, from the biology side, when you – you know, again, in Pennsylvania, you know, 940,000 hunters, and they've all been hunting for 30 years, and they've been doing it a certain way, you know, traditional deer hunting uh, for, you know, since their grandfather's age. Um, you know, they don't want to do things different, and they definitely don't want to. It's kind of a macho thing. You don't want to tell somebody what they're doing or have been doing for such a long time is wrong. But when you start educating them from a, a, a bio, biological standpoint, like, how to age a deer properly. Like, you know, I had, you know, one guy told me one time, you know, he can age deer by how fast they walk. You know, he called <laughs> the slow walkers were the older ones, you know, and I just always laugh about that. I mean, there may be yeah. some truth to that, you know, we get bad hips and such, but, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, but it was just, but there's a lot of different theories out there on aged deer, you know, that I, you, know, you go to a butcher shop and I mean, guys say a deer's old, it's got a gray face or it's got a short nose or its ears are long, whatever, you know? Um, right. Yeah. There's, but when you actually teach them to pull a jawbone and show them how to look at the jaw and age, you know, the, the enamel and the dentine and the tooth, scientifically, at first, if you explain it to them, they're very standoffish. But when you find they find it's really easy to do, I mean, we educate hunters all the time to do that. And it, it, in 10 minutes, I can teach you with a, you know, pretty accurately to age deer via jawbone. And when you show them that, man, they're really interested. They want to learn more, you know, and it just takes something, you know, something as little as that to, to open their mind up to maybe there is more than one way to skin the proverbial cat. Right. Nice. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, one, th- a couple things first, uh, I think you just created a t-shirt when you said we like to drive fast cars, chase pretty girls and shoot big bucks. Like uh, to me, there's a t- there's a t-shirt in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, to trademark that. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely get yourself an IP attorney and trade and trademark that thing immediately. I'll, I'll give you at least you know two weeks to do that before I might take it. Um, but the couple of things you mentioned there. So what I'm hearing, just to kind of recap, right, is a few things that you want to do that are kind of things to to set up a co-op. And what they've done there is absolutely nothing short of amazing. I mean, when you're talking about seventy thousand plus acres of co-op land, I mean that's, I mean that's that's absolutely incredible. But you know, what he did initially was he established a core area where he was going to, to begin the co-op. He, you know, he, he had his, his 30 acres and he wanted to reach out to the immediate folks who were around them to get them involved. But the way you kind of described it was he didn't go in like a bull in a china shop. He said, I'm going to follow these guidelines and I'm going to kind of lead by example as to what, what can happen. And right. that was kind of how he used, that was his communication into these folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it sounds to me like the next step is, is then to create an effective line of communication with hunters and landowners in your areas to kind of show them where the, the that the proof is in the pudding to, to right. agree. And, and then once, uh, and I'm assuming as this thing grows, like I'm assuming folks kind of like get involved and start to divvy up some of the responsibilities to communicate things out to like, whether it's harvest data or whether it's the, the weight data, like you were talking about, I'm assuming that probably doesn't all fall on one person. They're, they're probably starting to divide and conquer some of that information. Absolutely. Now at this point, now they have basically certain farms throughout the co-op that are basically quote unquote check stations, if you will. Uh, so basically right. uh, say farms land, you know, some people have just volunteered their time. Okay. You know, for this I don't know if they call them quadrants or sections, but, you know, I'll be the check station for this section. You'll be the check station for that section. And, again, the, 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 the most important thing is, you know, there's no punishment. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to be strict. We're not going to lose our tempers if somebody shoots a deer and doesn't check it with, you know, John Brown's, you know, farm over there because at the end of the day it needs to be fun. But let's try to keep those to a minimum. Everybody's on the same page. And you're right. When and one, let me rewind a little bit. What the, the the initial the initial guy did was he did buy the four joining landowners or five, if it was. He bought them KDMA memberships, so they were receiving oh, nice. the quality whitetails. 
Uh, and I'll stand by as, you know, one of the most informational magazines ever put out on whitetail deer and hunting or habitat, whatever, whatever you, if you're interested in any of the hunting magazines, that is our best tool as far as recruitment is concerned. And, um, he did do that, and slowly but surely, you're not going to force feed. And like I said, you're not going to force feed, you know, a 30-year veteran on to change his ways overnight. But slowly but surely, through education and you know, like you said, the proof in the pudding, they do come around because it's 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 a fun process. And what another thing too is he got the kids involved, um, especially doing the feed studies in their late season. Uh, you know, with some of the does that they were harvesting, you know, after they were bred. Uh, you know, get a group of kids around and actually show them how to, you know, look at measure and weigh a fetus and how you can, you know, count back and see when it was actually conceived. And, you know, you can put that against the moon phase. You can, you know, guys are hunting. You can, I mean, count back, for, you know, scientifically that it was conceived on November 7th. I mean, you know, boom, there, you know, you want to ask them when the rut was. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of proof right there. Um, right. They, they do a lot of that stuff, and they get the youth involved. And when the youth's involved, the parents are having fun with it. And in some aspects, it becomes a family activity. I mean, I've been around kids that can age jawbones and actually weigh an age of fetus, and, you know, they know how to count back the days. And it's pretty neat to see, actually. Right. I mean, there's one thing that you mentioned there was, you know, the um... – not everyone's going to necessarily abide by the rules and you don't want to kind of drop the hammer on those folks because this is still supposed to be fun. And so you do establish rules. You know, you mentioned that we you want to like go after certain antler restrictions once you get to a certain point where everyone where everyone's kind of committed to this thing. Or if you have some folks who are really knowledgeable and they've learned how to age on, on the hoof roughly, right, you can have them start doing that, which is to me would be a little bit more advanced. But to me, it, you know, it would almost be the best mechanism to have people or to help people fall in line is just that social pressure, right? So if everybody else is kind of following the same guidelines and the same rules and they're only harvesting, you know, the 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 bucks, you know, per the restrictions that you put in place whether it's age or whether it's antler and everyone else seems to be doing that, you really don't need to say anything to that one person who's falling out of line cuz he's going to be able to clearly see that everybody else is having success and following the rules at the same time. Right. Um, and it, it's it's amazing what social pressure can do, right? Yeah, it takes care of itself, it really does. And, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen, that's the great aspect. And I've seen the downside where you've gotten too strict with the rules and you try to implement punishment and that never works because, you know, at the end of the day, we're supposed to be having fun with it. It's our right. You know, we're hunters and gatherers by nature. And when you start, you know, you want to find somebody for shooting a, a, a sub legal, according to their standards, uh, you know, deer, you know, it just takes the fun out of it. You know what I mean? So, that's you know you try to shy away from that and and you're right the social pressure itself will take care of itself and you know what deer are a renewable resource man even if you kill a few of them that you know didn't quite meet the guidelines according to the club rules type of deal guess what man there's going to be a whole slew of them next year the same age you know what i mean so and then i'm sorry go ahead no i I was just going to say I was just going to say the the one the other thing that you mentioned was fun and you'd you'd mentioned the magazine and you know i kind of gave it a a uh, gave it some love at the top of the at the top of the podcast because I do think that it it's by far the best magazine I get and I get a handful of you know bow hunting magazines and uh, you know whitetail uh, habitat management type of magazines and so on and so forth and it by far the QDMA magazine I get is the hands down best magazine that 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 I receive so kudos to to you and the the QDMA folks uh, putting putting it out you know stuff that's amazingly informative um, and I'll hundred percent agree with you I probably haven't had I didn't trying to figure out how to word this properly. The most fun I've ever had hunting was when I started taking the the farm that we have and starting to implement habitat changes through whether it was, you know, making bedding and cover, hinge cutting and implementing food plots and really running my cameras all year round so I could kind of monitor their deer herd all year round. Um, that was really when hunting went to the next level of, of fun for me. And I sometimes think that I almost enjoy the the management side of it maybe just even a little bit more than the actual hunt because I can actually do that, you know, 10 months out of the year essentially versus, you know, I get to archery hunt because I mainly, I don't do a lot of gun hunting anymore. So my season for the most part is done there, you know, in PA at least at the end of November and I'll go back out for, uh, or the, you know, late November and then I'll go back out for late season for a couple of days. But the, the management part of it, I can enjoy 12 months, at least not, if not 12, 10 months out of the year. Um, and, and to your point, it's like I started getting my daughter involved in it and there's not a better way to get her outside and just appreciating the outdoors and the animals, you know, the wild creatures that we get to chase and how awesome they are to watch in their, in their own environment than, than to get her out there 
and doing those things and contributing in a meaningful way to the land that hopefully one day she'll, uh, she'll join me and hunt with me. Right. And you're hundred percent right. Uh, you know, when you get in touch with nature and start managing, you know, like you say, 10 months of the year, it's, it's a whole different level. And I don't, you know, it's just not about hunting anymore. It's not about, you know, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, it's about the killing and it's really not. And at some point we, we put the five stages of the hunting out there and basically you go from a teenager up until your fifties and sixties. And when you're a teenager, man, you do want to get out there and you want to, you have that, that need that, that basic primal urge to get blood on your hands. And, and at the end of the day, that is what it's about, you know, and then you kind of graduate from that and you want to get into like the quality stage, you know, maybe you become more picky and, uh, you know, you're not, you're shooting three and a half year old or you're trying to shoot three and a half year old and older. And then you start to manage your ground and what you're doing now. And then you start to mentor people. And, and then, you know, I, I, I'm around some camps that have, you know, those 60 and 70 and even 80 year old guys that, and they just want to show up for the social aspect. They've been there and done all that, you know, but they, they still show up. They, they could really care less if they ever kill another deer, but man, they'd love to be part of that system. And I'm a firm believer that it's that, that primal instinct in us just because I predominantly do not come from a hunting family and everything I've done in life has been a based around bow hunting, honestly, or you know, being outdoors hunting in general. So, um, you know, you can't say that, you know, I'm from a family of hunters and, you know, I, that was the only way I was going to do it. I mean, not really, man. I, I kind of carved this niche out myself and I, I really do think it's, it's something that is, that is, you know, in, in us, it's who we are. You know, it wasn't long ago. I don't know, 150, 200 years ago. I mean, we were hunters and gatherers by nature. Um, you know, I went as far as saying, you know, what's a group of, you know, talk about kids, but what's a group of kids when they get together? And, uh, you know, it doesn't take them very long. They start playing hide and seek. And, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I truly think hide and seek is probably one of the earliest forms of hunting. Um, I mean, you don't teach, you never taught your daughter how to play hide and seek, right? You've never seen nope. anybody teach her. She just knows <laughs> no. how to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and that's in us. That's who we are, right? Uh, some of us, it, it, it kind of is gone and forgotten because they're not exposed to it at a young age. I think there's some statistics out there on the on the youth programs that are out there. And if you don't if you don't expose children to that primal instinct by the age of 14, it goes away really quickly. Um, but if they experience it, like you're probably doing with your daughter up until 14 years old, it stays with them for a long time, and they they're probably more likely to pass it on. So right, I mean, uh, for, for me, it's it, you know, I hope that she hunts. Right, it's like I took her out for a turkey hunt this year. This that was her first hunt. She went to the into the blind with me. She of course you know wasn't carrying a weapon i was using a bow and we went and we sat and that was her her first hunt so you know will she hunt whenever she gets a little older i hope that she does you know but i can't say for certain that she will but what i'm trying to do more than anything is that i want her to have that appreciation of the outdoors and know that to be a hunter is okay um that it's not that it's not something that even if you prefer to not partake of procuring your own you know as uh shane mahoney would say wild proteins um that you know, if you don't choose to participate in that way, that's okay. I choose to take the responsibility for the life that I'm going to take to consume for my own nutritional value. Right. You know, so I want her to at least have that perspective. Right. And and I, I I'm a firm believer when I say when when you're raised by wolves, you act like a wolf type of deal, and that goes just to that. I have a nine year old son, and he hasn't hunted yet. I mean. He has never taken a gun or a bow into the woods, you know, with the sole purpose to kill something. Now, he has tagged along with me, but right. I'm not like you. I'm not forcing him into it at all. It's, you know, it, it, it's the opportunity is there, but I really do believe by him just watching and being around me and, and everything that I and my friends do that, I mean, at some point he's going to, it's going to, it's going to click, you know, and, and, oh man, you know, this is why they do it. It is awesome, you know, and you're giving back to nature. And, I mean, we plant trees and we have a food plot. I mean, the bottom part of my yard is a food plot. I mean, so, right. yeah, I mean, it's, it's there's a lot more to it than just, you know, I'm doing this because I want my deer hunting to be better. I mean, it really is, you know, as, you know, as trying not to be a tagline, but it really is, you know, who I am and what I am. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I think by, you know, <laughs> by nature he's going to pick up on but if he doesn't it's not a big deal either i i 100 percent agree with you he's certainly going to be okay with it and you know just recently you know throwing another statistic out there but i think uh, the hunting approval right now is at the highest that it's ever been uh basically you know, for a lot of different reasons in the hunter games and you know kind of 
portraying hunting in a different aspect and, you know, the whole local horror movement where a lot of people are going away from, you know, meat that's bought in a grocery store that you don't really know where it came from. Uh, that movement's pretty big. And, you know, hunting approval even from non-hunters, I think, is, you know, in the 80 percentile somewhere. So uh, hunting approval rating by non-hunters is, is uh, higher than it's ever been right now for a lot of those same reasons you say. And, and that's fine. If, you know, if our kids choose not to be like us, that's fine. As long as they understand what it is we're actually doing, we're managing a resource, you know, and there's a lot of benefits from that, you know, not just putting meat in a freezer. Right. And I think, you know, the other thing important to kind of say is that what you mentioned just a second ago is that we're that we're managing a a resource. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, non-hunters don't look at it um, from that perspective and don't understand the type of commitment that hunters make um, toward conservation, Um, how important the lands are to us and that um, and how large of a role we play in ensuring that, you know, people that don't choose to hunt, which is fine, that have the opportunity to still enjoy those natural resources from taking pictures to hiking to um, boating or whatever the case might be that you have clean waters, that you have clean air, that you have, you know, beautiful places to go visit and watch wild creatures, um, not behind a cage or not, not in a zoo. Um, I think, I think sometimes that, um, that notion's lost on folks. Um, and it's always nice to hear and hopefully our little podcast will do a little part in rem- reminding some folks. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> That would be great. So, I, I think I think you know I had one or two other questions, but I think you covered off one. Everything that is um, setting up a quality you know, a QDM uh, co-op. Um, you know, before we before we let you go, I don't want to eat up a, t- a ton of your time because I know you're traveling um, this week a bit. But you know, if if folks are interested in getting involved in creating a, a, a QDM co-op or just getting more information about QDMA, where are some of the places they can go and the types of information they get, and, and where can they find them? Well, you just uh, first they could go to our website. Uh, we have uh, we have a page dedicated to co-ops. Uh, I don't know how many articles have been written on it. There's a ton of information, as you mentioned before, on our website. You know, on, under the co-op section, any any section they want, you know, about hunting co-ops. I mean, managing your land. There's there's a lot. So you can go there. You can start there, or you know, you can call your regional director. We have uh, eleven of them throughout the United States and into Canada. So. You can call your regional, your you know, QDMA regional director, or follow in your region, and uh, you know pick his brain about it, and you know they can point you in the right direction, definitely. And even a step further, we do now have uh, co-op. Prof- I mean, basically, you know, paid co-op employees uh, through a, a, a basic cost share program with the two different state agencies. Um, Missouri being one, we have two co-op uh, professionals there. Uh, their base, their their job is to solely work with land managers that want to enroll their land into some sort of co-op program. And we have one in New York, or excuse me, Michigan, uh, with one maybe potentially coming in New York. So we have three on on board now, and hopefully uh, a fourth one soon. Uh, so, you know, we're hoping that you know uh, Missouri, you know, kind of kicked it off with uh, they started it, uh, the State Department of Missouri, and then we partnered with them, and it's been very successful in Missouri. So we're hoping other states follow suit. But it would be great if, uh, if you know, each state, you know, especially in the Northeast, had had a co-op specialist within their state. Yeah, that'd be great. How can uh, people get involved? As I'd mentioned, I'm a, a member of a member of QDMA. Um, but how can folks get involved with QDMA in, in in their area and just then at large, whether it's becoming a member or getting involved to help with volunteering and so forth? Yeah, easiest way to do that is call your regional director and find the closest branch to you. Uh, we have we're up we have around uh, somewhere over 200 branches nation, nationwide. Uh, so it's probably I would be safe to bet that there's probably a branch within an hour and a half or two hours of somebody you know on the far end and maybe even 125 minutes from somebody. So call your regional director, tell them where you're from and you want to be involved, and uh, they'll easily put you in touch with somebody and love to have you because we're always looking for more help out there. Nice. And then if 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 folks out there listening, if you do nothing else, it's well worth. The I don't exactly remember how much it is, but it's well worth the the the, the few bucks it costs to to become a QDM A member on the site and sign up, and you get the the magazine that Ryan and I both mentioned uh, earlier, and it's full of all kinds of information. It's been invaluable to me. So before I let you go, the one thing I always like to do is like to just kind of go on a quick hunt uh, with our with our guests. So I'd like for you to take us on a hunt, you know, a, a memorable hunt of yours. It doesn't have to be whitetail. It can be, you know, whatever whatever species that you're going after. Just give us every detail from the truck to the tailgate story and let us know what state you're hunting in. 
Um, man, that's a tough one for me. Even I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but you know, a lot of people would probably answer that you know they love to hunt with a family member. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I kind of didn't grow up hunting in that situation with family members, and my son isn't old enough to where he's really hunting yet, so I haven't got to enjoy that part of it, but. I am predominantly a big white-tailed deer hunter, and I have—I don't even know if I can narrow it down to one, uh, one specific day. And I guess the one that I would share with you would be a specific season. And I actually did not—I end, ended up not killing this deer, but man, it's haunted me, and it's probably been very—it was just a fun season. But I guess I don't know. Seven or eight years ago, I started uh, hunting with a recurve. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I mean, none of them really make sense. But anyway, I hunt with a recurve now. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you this for sure since I've switched to a recurve, I have killed a lot less deer. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, one year, you know, I guess uh, this would have been in uh, 2012, 2012. Uh, so four years, four seasons ago. Uh, I was hunting a buck that I got the first picture of him on August 5th. Um, and I, I mean, it was a big, mature five by five with some sticker points. Uh, so I called him Stickers. Um, I mean, he was a really big deer. And, you know, just the whole while I want to get on that buck. And, and uh, it was actually funny because I'd just gotten permission to hunt the farm. And I threw that camera out, and, you know, one day, I mean, checked it like three or four days later. And he was the first deer I got a picture of on the farm. It happened to be him. And, I guess being, you know, kind of advanced level of hunting, I'm a firm believer deer, certain deer have personalities. Some are very hard, you know, to to pattern and figure out and very shy by nature. And some of them are just, you know, very photogenic. And and stickers happen to be one of those deer. It seemed like every time I I hunted, I'd at least see him. And I I just had tons of pictures of him. Uh, So long story short, uh, in November... I think it was, I think the season ended that year on the 12th. So this has been like the 10th, maybe, or the 9th. Um, he was chasing the doe and, you know, him and I had been back and forth. And again, I was hanging with a recurve. So, I mean, they got to be inside the 20 yard line. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of limitations there. So I had a few opportunities to kill him, or I would have had opportunities to kill him had I had a compound, but I didn't. So I guess I really didn't have the opportunity to kill him. But anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, that day he came down and he was chasing the doe and he like let his guard completely down. And I mean, it just it, everything was going right. And he comes in behind me, you know, like eight, nine yards, goes around the front quarter and away, 11, 12 yards. And I mean, I literally shot a foot over his back. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was one of those deals where, you know, I just didn't pick a spot and contrary buck fever. It was all of the above and, um, right. you know, shoot over his back. So, you know, the next morning, uh, I actually snuck back into that stand. It was a stand that I hunted on a north wind, uh, especially just a little bit later in the morning when the thermals were rising. And it was basically trying to, it was a, a north wind stand, and there was a, an eastern, off to my east, northeast kind of, there was a, I don't want to call it a doe bedding area, but it was an area that kind of created a natural bull. And the does and fawns just, they just stayed in it almost had, it was almost like a, an auditorium, if you will. And every time I went by there, I would run deer out of there. So, I mean, I would be very careful not to run them out of there. And on a north wind, especially out of the northeast, a buck of the morning could walk the ridge top and basically with the thermals rising when the sun hit the ground could set check that whole area. And there was a drainage that came out of the, the a seepage that came out of the hillside, you know, just to the southwest on, of that area. So it really funneled the movement around me and narrowed them down naturally to, I think it was like 13 yards. I mean, it's some, you know, if you really understood topography and what was going on there, it was, you know, almost like cheating. You kind of got to shoot your way out type of deal for <laughs> right. you're moving naturally across this ridge top. So I snuck back in there again the next morning uh, because when I had shot at him the day before, he really had no idea what happened. Um, he didn't even know I was there. He was more interested in the doe. Snuck back in there the next morning and had another opportunity and uh, didn't get a shot at him because he was moving too quickly, again, chasing the doe. And then not long after him, a big uh, five-year-old four-by-four. I didn't, I'd never had a picture of this deer. He just showed up. Obviously, there were some hot does in the area, and I ended up missing that buck. Uh, just about the same <laughs> place that I missed stickers the day before. So it's like, man, when it can't get any worse, right? And then I think that was Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday I couldn't hunt. But the, So Saturday being the last day, I kind of go back into that farm, but I go a quarter mile away because it was actually the winds had switched from the north to the south. So I couldn't hunt those stands anymore. I get into the south stand, southwest stand, and uh, up on a ridge top. And, 
you know, I'm just like down. I'd seen these, you know, stickers. I don't know how many times. It's the last day. You know that feeling. It's like, man, you know, here I am again eating tag soup. What am I doing with this recurve type of deal? And I mean, the sun's coming up, and you know, why am I doing this? You know, everything goes through your mind at that point. And I had seen a lot of bucks that season, a lot and some really nice ones. And I'm very, I mean, I was very happy. At the end of the day, it's not about. I mean, I do like to kill those deer, but I, man, those experiences are pretty cool too. And uh, this fact that I'm just talking about this and I didn't get to kill the deer is a pretty cool thing. So you can tell that I probably do enjoy it. Um, right. Anyway, on the last day, I mean, uh, I hear, you know, one of those, uh, you know, slow, you know, you know, in those November mornings when the leaves are real crunching, you just hear that, that one deer walking, you know, crunching on the leaves. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, that, that you cannot mistake that, that, that gate, that cadence of that, those leaves crunching just one animal you know it's a it's a buck you know you don't know how old right. he is but you know it's a buck and he's out looking for a doe and i don't know what it was i just instantly stood up and was kind of on a bend and grabbed my bow and, and i looked over to my left and i mean he's 30 yards with his head down just walking and here comes stickers again and i'm like oh my god I'm, i mean i i know where he's at i had you know i i i kind of cut paths in and, and close old trails off and open new ones up so they funnel you know basically again right into my wheelhouse I mean, I need all the help I can get with a recurve. And, uh, I mean, he's on one of those trails leading. I mean, I know he's going to end up eight, nine yards. And, I mean, he's, you know, I'm I'm basically got my taxidermist on speed down. I mean, he walks <laughs> in there and, I mean, he literally stops. I mean, you couldn't have stopped him in any better spot. You know, his near shoulder forward and I draw back and release the arrow and it goes two inches underneath of him. I mean, and it's like... <laughs> I mean, at least I didn't shoot over him that time because before everybody's like, why do you keep shooting over these deer? You know, I I wasn't hitting anchor, so I was so excited. And if if you shoot traditional, you'll realize when you don't hit anchor and you're not picking a spot, you tend to miss high. And so missing low was actually a little bit of a sigh of relief for me because I actually (laughs) hit anchor, but I did not kill the deer. Um, So anyway, I mean, that was that story. And unfortunately, uh, he was killed the first day of gun season by the neighbor, uh, and, oh, wow. you know, they, they knew I was hunting him and I had a history with him. So they called me and I, I, I mean, we all got along great and I measured him and he was uh one sixty five and three eight. So, I mean, he wow. was a big, you know, and he was only a four year old, which is really cool. Uh, man, wow. you know, had he made it that, you know, into a five or a six year old, I don't know what he would have blown up into. And that is a Pennsylvania deer. Um, wow. so yeah, really neat story. And, and, uh, I think back of the opportunity and the enjoyment that, uh, he gave me that season and, uh, that's probably one of my fondest memories of bow hunting for sure. Well, I'm going to, that story was awesome. And I, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to sleep tonight because that just got me jacked up and ready (laughs) for the, uh, (laughs) and ready for the season. So, um, and I think the way you described it, I think what you said was like how excited you were, even though a harvest wasn't the, wasn't the end result. I think it goes back to something that we mentioned earlier, which is just, you know, how connected we are to the outdoors and how much it means to us when you can have that kind of enjoyment in what some would consider a failure, right? Cause you'd have some of these folks who consider themselves to be professional hunters where it's like, if it's not a, if it's not a harvest, it's not a successful hunt. Um, my opinion, like some of my favorite hunts were, were trips. So I, I came home not, with nothing but a story and a memory, you know? Yeah. So there's a whole romance to it. And, and, uh, I, you know, I, I get caught up in talking a lot about it and, you know, some of my history was being a, a, a national, you know, competitive archer and uh, won a national championship in 2002. Or, and I remember doing an interview with, uh, at the time it was 3D Times Magazine, and they called me, you know, the, a tournament archer. You know, I just won a national tournament. And I remember, like, instantly thinking, I'm not a tournament archer. I mean, because everything I had done, I shot a bow just to get better at being a bow hunter because I couldn't hit a deer right. once, I mean, back then. So I just started shooting out, you know, as guys, again, we had that competitive side to us. So, you know, yeah, I went to 3D shoots and then, I, you know, it rolls into indoor shoots and then I'm shooting FIA style tournaments and such. And I, you know, I went a big tournament, but never once in my life did I pick my bow up and go to a range because I was a tournament archer. I, I was a bow hunter by nature that just wanted to be better. And, um, that whole what I'm getting at is it's not that hunt, but it's the romance. You know, it's it's not it's not uh, you know how we hunt, but rather the why we're hunting. And I think when people get in tune with that, they get in touch with that. It's what really you know probably you have it. It's what really draws you back. You know that that whole romance. And 
not to say that I want to go out hunting, you know, like last season and not kill a deer. At the end of the year, you know, at, at the end of the day, the end of the hunt, whatever, I mean, we all do it for a reason. I, and I equate it to, like, it's like going to work without getting a paycheck. I don't, no matter how you love your job, you want to get paid at the end of the day, right? So, I mean, <laughs> right. I, I really don't go hunting just to see the sunrise. I mean, I can see the sunrise from my front porch, you know, <laughs> type right. of deal. Uh, yeah, I do go there for that end result. But at the same time, the romance and, and you know, that whole process of, like you said, managing land or, you know, whether it be managing your land or shooting your bow, the responsibility of having your broad, broadheads fly true, you know, to the responsibility of cutting those lanes in, like I say, and closing trails off and understanding wind direction and air currents and thermals and, and trying to outwit and get that three-and-a-half-year-old or two, and whatever it may be inside that 20-yard line, that whole process, that's why I do it, you know. And ultimately, I do want it. And once that all all that preparation, and once all that comes together, I do want to. You know, I want to close the deal more than anybody. But if it doesn't, it's not a it's not a it's not a wasted hunt at all. Right? Yeah. It's the. Uh, I think what you. I think you just said it perfectly. It's 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 the journey. Um, and whenever everything comes together, it makes it that much that much sweeter. But with with that said, I know I've I've kept you here. You know, for for about an hour. I want to be. I have no problem talking about this stuff. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I do want to be respectful of your time. And, um, and, uh, I do want to thank you for hopping on. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and uh, I'm sure folks listening, you've gotten a ton of information or you know, are going to particularly enjoy that story. So thanks for your time, Ryan. I appreciate it. Okay. No problem. Thank you. All right. With that, this episode is a wrap. We'd like to thank Ryan for joining the podcast today. And please be sure to visit qualitydeermanagementassociation.com and check out all the information that they have there. Also, do yourself a service and sign up for their membership. The magazine that you receive alone is well worth the, the membership cost. Be sure to follow QDMA on all their various social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I will also provide you links to the website and all their social media handles in the blog post show notes. And last but certainly not least, I want to give a big thank you to all of you out there who are listening. Every month it seems that the podcast downloads continue to grow, and that's due to the folks out there, all of you who are listening and hitting play every two weeks when we put out a new podcast. So a big thank you to all of you. With that said, please feel free to share out any of the podcasts that you think uh, any of your friends and or family would enjoy the content. Uh, We'd be much appreciative of that. As always, you can find us and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you would, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you are enjoying the podcast. That would be much appreciated and very helpful. So until next time, we'll see you. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.